15, verse 36, Acts 15, 36, through the 15th verse of chapter 16. Believe it or not, we have been in the book of Acts, this, I think this is sermon number 28 or 29. Isn't that crazy? But we've come a long ways in the book of Acts. And, you know, it's kind of interesting that um, from chapter 1 where we started to where we're at today at the end of chapter 15, there's been some like 25 years that have passed since Jesus had been resurrected from the dead and ascended to heaven since the church was first started to where it is today. And it's just, it was amazing just to watch how um, the gospel spread just like wildfire. You know, Jesus gave that great commission at the end of Matthew to, to go out and make disciples of all nations, and they took that to heart. And just a handful of people uh, that started there just exploded. And, and by this time, literally, there were tens upon tens of thousands of Christians throughout the whole Roman world, both Jews and, and Gentiles, non-Jews alike, and it really is amazing what God did. Well, as we saw last week, um, although that's a very good thing, what began to take place was that most churches that were started were, were partially full of Jews and partially full of non-Jews, and at first everything was okay, until this teaching started coming in where these Jews kind of had it in their mind that the Gentiles or the non-Jews weren't really legit Christians unless they converted over to Judaism first. And so last week we kind of looked at what's kind of been commonly known as the, the Jerusalem Council where the apostles gathered together and the church leaders kind of settle this issue once and for all, whether or not somebody had to be circumcised, which I know that sounds kind of funny to us today, but it, it was the sign and the co- well, really the sign of being a Jew. If you remember the covenant way back in the Old Testament with Abraham, God told Abraham and all the boys there and on after to be circumcised, it's a sign that they were, were, were the covenant people, the people that belonged to God. And so anyways, at this Jerusalem council, they, they gathered together and, and decided once and for all that that, that no, you, you don't have to become a Jew before you can become a Christian. That's not what it is all about. It's all about having faith in, in Jesus Christ, having faith in who he was and what he did on the cross and his, and his death and resurrection and just understanding that that's good enough to save a person from their sins. And, and, and that's what was decided last week. And so that's kind of where we left off and we're going to kind of begin um, as we um, finish up chapter 15 and move into chapter 16 here this evening. So let's go ahead um, and start with prayer and then we'll get into our verses. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this night. We're so thankful um, for this book we hold in our hands that is, that is your word. It's your word spoken to us for our benefit so we can know who you are, so we can understand how it is that you want us to live and, and what it is you want us to do. God, I just pray tonight that you would instruct us, that you would teach us. Lord, what I love about you, God, is that you know us all personally. You know every, every detail of our lives, every issue we have, everything that we're, that we're going through. And I just pray tonight, God, that you would speak to every single person in this place tonight, wherever they're at, just speak to them, Lord, and move in hearts and lives that we can leave this place looking more like Jesus than we walked when we walked in. Father, we love you. We thank you. Uh, be honored in this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's go ahead and start by reading um, the last part of chapter 15 here, verses 36 through the end of the chapter. And it says this, After some time, Paul said to Barnabas, Let's go back to visit each city where we previously preached the word of the Lord. See how the new believers are, to see how the new believers are doing. Uh, Barnabas agreed and wanted to take along John Mark, but Paul disagreed strongly since John Mark had, been, had, had deserted them in um, Pamphylia and had not continued with them in their work. Their disagreement was so sharp that they separated. 
Barnabas took John Mark with him and sailed for Cyprus. Paul chose Silas, and as he left, the believers entrusted to the, them to the Lord's care, and, and then he traveled throughout Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches there. Now, when it says after some time here, and give me some time here because I forgot to silence this thing, and if I don't do that, inevitably, it will go off. You ever have that problem in church? Yeah. It's really embarrassing when it's in the pastor's phone that's doing it. So anyways, when it says after some time here in that first verse, it's, it's when it says that it's talking about between when Paul and Barnabas got back from their last missionary journey until this point. We're talking about five years or so that had passed. And basically what Paul was saying is like, look, it's been a long time since we've seen all these people that we reached over there in Asia Minor or like Antioch and those places over there. And he's like, we really need to go back there and visit these people to see how they are. You know, one thing I just love about the Apostle Paul is that he wasn't just concerned about numbers meaning it wasn't just about how many people he could see saved or getting a pat on the back for being such an incredible evangelist. It wasn't about that at all. He, he genuinely, genuinely loved the people that he had reached, and he wanted to make sure that they stood firm in the faith. And literally, he was willing to go hundreds of miles across land and sea, back through these cities of Antioch, Lystra, Iconium, Derby, where we talked about here a few weeks back, like these same cities where... He was driven out of one, threatened to be stoned in another one, and was actually stoned almost to death in another one. And yet he loved these people so much that he willingly traveled back through them just to be able to minister to these people. That's how much he cared for them. And I was just thinking to myself, like, man, what if the people of the church cared about each other the way Paul cared about those people that were literally hundreds and hundreds of miles away. Like, what would happen here in this place if, if people went out of their way just to encourage somebody, just to shoot a text or to, or to send a phone call or to walk up to somebody in church and just say, hey, how was your work that week? I've been praying for you type of thing, right? I mean, what would that do in the life of a church if, if people in the church knew that they had partners in the faith? that they were praying for them, that they were, they were encouraging them, that were building them up. I, I can tell you what, what would happen. We would be encouraged. We, we would be a strong, strong church. But for that to happen, like the, the shift of mindset has to take place that, that church isn't just a place that we do on the weekends because, that's, or, because we're Christians and, and that's what Christians do, right? We go to church and we, we sing a few songs and, and, and get preached at and go home, right? We have to have a mindset shift from that to no, we're coming here because this is my family. This is my church. These are my brothers and sisters in Christ. These are the people that I'm encouraged by, that I'm strengthened by, and that I, in my life, get to pour into them as well and encourage and strengthen them. I tell you what, if, if we can become that church, and we're getting there. We're getting there. We're not there yet, but we're getting there. If we can become that church, it, it's an incredible thing to behold. Well, as we move on to verses 37 through 41, so Paul comes with this, up with this idea, and Barnabas is like, that's a great idea. I think we should too, but he had a little caveat with it. He wanted to bring John Mark, which was his cousin, he wanted to bring him back on this trip with them. Now, if you can remember back a number of chapters back in Acts 13, John Mark was the one that started off with Paul and Barnabas on that first trip, and yet he 
left them right in the middle of the trip and didn't go um, finish it out with him. Now, we don't know why he left, but clearly it wasn't a reason that Paul was very much a fan of. In fact, he was still pretty upset by whatever it was, but Barnabas wanted to look past it uh, and bring him along, but Paul was having none of it. So when they clearly came to a stalemate on this, they they separated and, and went their different ways. Barnabas took um, Mark, and, and they went onto the island of Cyprus, where that mission trip had first started, and seems natural, because that's what Barnabas' home, that was Barnabas' hometown, or home island, or whatever, was the island of Cyprus, and then, and then Paul chose Silas to go with him, and they took off back into Asia Minor, back through those cities that, that Paul and Barnabas had ministered in a number of years before, and there they strengthened the churches. Now, one, one question we should ask is, of all the people that Paul could have picked, why did he pick Silas? Well, there's a number of good reasons that he picked Silas. Um, one, we can see back from verse 32 of chapter 15 that, that he was a preacher. Um, it says that Silas was a prophet, and a prophet's one who speaks God's word into people's lives. Um, Silas was a Jew, and he was also an official representative of the Jerusalem church, which, which gave him spiritual authority. Remember when, when they were going around ministering to these peoples, most of the time they would start in the Jewish synagogue, and a person that was a Jew, especially somebody from the Jerusalem church, had tremendous authority spiritually um, with those people. Um, another good reason he took him was because Silas was a Roman citizen, and that gave them the freedom to move about the Roman Empire, and that kind of is an important piece later on when him and Paul find themselves in jail. And another big thing is that Silas is somebody that could speak the Greek language. How do we know that? Well, because he wrote Peter's first letter, which we know is the book of First Peter. In First Peter 5.12, he gives credit to writing that letter to Silas. And so those red letters were, were written in the Greek language, so he obviously could speak it and write it. And again, all these things are really important when it comes to Paul having a partner in ministry because they were moving on to people who were very much Greek speaking. Now, one may ask a, a good question, like this dispute between Paul and Barnabas seems like a bad thing, and, and who was right? Was Barnabas right to, to look past John Mark's mistake and to, and to give him another chance? Or, or did, did Paul have um, something in this and maybe he was correct? Well, uh, you know, re- remember Barnabas, his name literally means son of encouragement. Now that's, the na- that's his name, right? And so it just seems like normal that, that he would want to encourage Mark by giving him another chance. Where, where Paul, I, I don't think... In fact, I'm certain it wasn't a grudge. Like, I really don't believe it was a grudge that he held toward him. My guess, if I had to guess, he, he did not think he was spiritually ready to go on another trip like this, and, and therefore um, he didn't want to bring him. Honestly, it doesn't really matter. We know that they both, they, they all made up later on, um, so much so that later on in Paul's ministry, um, in 2 Timothy 4.11, he told Timothy to bring Mark with you when you come, for he's helpful to me in my ministry. So regardless of what took place there, they reconciled later on in life. Life, which was super, super important. And oh, I've said this before, and I think it's just important to say again that if, if conflict could happen between two spiritual giants like Paul and Barnabas, can I tell you something? Do you think maybe that's normal in a church? I mean, it, it's inevitable, isn't it? I mean, there's, there's going to be times where conflict is going to arise, but the big thing just to keep in mind when it does is that we need to handle it with just love and with grace because uh, it's, it's far more important to, to be together in unity than to, to, to be separated. Let's move on to um, the verses 1 through 10 in Acts 16. It says this, Paul went first to Derby, 
and then to Lystra, where there was a young disciple named Timothy. His mother was a Jewish believer, but his father was a Greek. Timothy was well thought of by the believers in Lystra and Iconium, so Paul wanted him to join them on their journey. In, in deference to the Jews, that just basically means in, in humble submission to them and res- respect for them is kind of the idea. In deference to the Jews of the area, he arranged for Timothy to be circumcised before they left, for everyone knew that his father was Greek. Then they went from town to town instructing the believers to follow the, deci- the decisions made by the apostles and the elders in Jerusalem. And so the churches were strengthened in their faith and grew larger every day. Next, Paul and Silas traveled through the area of Phrygia and Galatia because the Holy Spirit had prevented them from preaching the word in the province of Asia at that time. Then coming to the borders of Mycenae, they headed north for the province of Bithynia, but again, the Spirit um, of, of Jesus did not allow them to go there, so instead they went on through Mycenae to the seaport of Troas. That night, Paul had a vision. A man from Macedonia in northern Greece was standing there pleading with him, come over to Macedonia and help us. So we decided to leave for Macedonia at once, having concluded that God was calling us to preach the good news there. So since Barnabas um, and Mark took the Cyprus route, they went to Cyprus, remember? And if you remember that first missionary journey, um, they started in Cyprus and then went up to Antioch and went that way. Well, since, Paul and, well, since Barnabas and Mark went that way, Paul and Silas kind of took the, the land route up through um, his, his town of Tarsus and eventually into Derby in Lystra, which Lystra was the hometown of this young man named Timothy. Now, a few things, uh, things about Timothy. Um, more than likely, he was saved on Paul's first missionary journey. Um, it says here that, that he had a Jewish mother and a Greek father. Um, again, what's the big deal? It was a lot bigger deal back then than, than we probably understand today. And I'll get into that here in just a second. Um, he was highly thought of by the people of Lystra and Iconium, it says, which tells me that he was a pretty influential young man, um, well-respected in those cities. And, and no doubt, for these reasons, um, Paul um, wanted Timothy to come with them on this particular journey that they were about to embark on. But before he went, um, Paul asked him to be circumcised. Now that just seems just a little bit odd, doesn't it? Why would Paul ask this young man, Timothy, to be circumcised? Well, he says out of respect for the Jews. Now, although Timothy's mother, again, was Jewish, his father was Greek, and obviously he followed his Greek heritage because he had not been circumcised, and and although Paul was sent to um, the Gentiles by Jesus, I mean, it, it was the way he did things. He always started by reaching out to the Jews first, and here's the thing. Paul knew that the Jews would not give any credibility whatsoever to Timothy if he wasn't circumcised. And so he asked him out of respect for them people to do that. Now, what's the big deal? The big deal is the Jews of the day would have looked at Timothy like a half-breed. Like, go back to the 1800s, like a half-white person, half-Indian, right? Just disrespected. You're a half-breed. There's just no respect. And certainly no spiritual credibility among them. Now, just understand that, that Timothy was an adult, like he was a young man. And this was a very big ask of him. You know, I mean, my, my first thought, honestly, is ouch. Um, my second thought is, like, how would they even know? I know that's weird to think about, but I mean, you just think about, like, like how would they know, right? And, and so I, like, you know, Googled it, like, why just a big deal? I mean, how, do they do an inspection? Like, how, how does this, 
how does this work, you know? Uh, and they said, from, from what, but when I found out, a lot of times what they would do, like, they'd have public bathhouses and stuff like that. And so obviously you look over and, hey, pretty obvious, you know? And, and so they, they wouldn't have been accepted. He wouldn't have been accepted among the Jews and would have had no spiritual authority with them. Now, here's the big question. Isn't this kind of hypocritical for Paul to ask? It's a good question, isn't it? Because, like, they literally had just met at the Jerusalem Council and decided this wasn't necessary. They literally decided Gentiles do not have to be circumcised to be considered a Christian. Well, here's the thing. This had nothing to do with his salvation. This had zero to do with Paul questioning Timothy's salvation, but this had everything to do with him asking Timothy to do something just simply out of love and respect for the Jewish people. He, he wanted to make sure that there was zero hindrance whatsoever from him ministering to the people they were about to go see. Now, if you can kind of get Paul's, we kind of get Paul's mindset from something that he wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 19 through 23. And this was Paul writing, he says this, Again, speaking about very much the same thing here. He says, Even though I am a free man with no master, I have become a slave to all people to bring many to Christ. When I was with the Jews, I lived like a Jew to bring the Jews to Christ. When I was with those who followed the Jewish law, I too lived under that law, even though I am not subject to the law, and I did so so that I could bring to Christ those who are under the law. When I am with the Gentiles who do not follow the Jewish law, I too live apart from the law so that I can bring them to Christ. But I do not ignore the law of God. I obey the law of Christ. But, but when I am with those who are weak, I share their weakness. For I want to bring the weak to Christ. Yes, I try to find common ground with everyone, doing everything I can to save some. I do everything to spread the good news and share in its blessings. So what Paul was asking of Timothy was simply for him to, to submit to this physical procedure truly as an act of love toward these people. So there would be zero hindrance between him and ministering kind of, kind of to them. And the fact that he submitted to this shows clearly why Paul chose that young man, Timothy. His heart was right. Clearly he had a heart for God and his people. And it's, I think a natural question that should stir in our minds as we think about this is like, are we as committed to God and his mission as that young man, Timothy, was? Now, granted, the whole circumcision thing is way in the past, and it's not anything we deal with today, but, but, but still, like, what if, what if God asked us to make some major sacrifice for his kingdom? Would God ever do that? I think so. Like, what, what if God, like, called us to do something really, really uncomfortable, way out of our comfort zone? Would we do it? Maybe some of you are sitting here thinking... I don't know, it kind of depends on what it is, right? But, uh, but, but the thing is, is for, for all that God's done for us, is, is there anything that's too much for him to ask? I mean, really, honestly, the answer to that is no. And we should be willing to do anything for him. And it just challenged me when I read that, that I just wonder, I mean, even in my own life, man, am, am I that committed? Am I committed to Christ as much as Timothy was? Something to reflect on. Well, we can see the choice paid off, and in verse 4, it tells us that they ministered to the churches in various cities, and people grew in their faith, the church was strengthened, and from there, they, they took off through the Roman provinces of Galatia and Phrygia, and it's interesting, they went there to spread the gospel, and yet the Holy Spirit spoke and said, hey, I don't want you to go there, keep on trucking forward, and, and then they made plans to head north into the Roman province of Bithynia, and again, the Lord's like, nope, 
nope, just, just keep, on, keep on going. And they traveled through Mycenae and finally ended up at the port city of Troas on the Aegean, on the Aegean Sea. And so like, now what, right? They, they've traveled this whole area and now they're at the sea and like a whole world to explore and, and God, where do you want us to go? Well, that night... Um, the Lord sent Paul a vision. It was this vision of this man from, from Macedonia, which we know is it's in Greece, right? Across the sea from, from where they were at in kind of modern-day Turkey. And this man says, you know, pretty much to come, I, I have need of you, right? Come and, come and help. Now, there's this interesting transition in verse 10, and it's subtle, but notice this. It says, so we. Who's the we? Anybody, anybody remember who wrote the book of Acts? Shout out if you do. Nobody. Starts with an L. Luke. Yeah, and so anyways, Luke, the, the writer of Acts, he, he's there in Troas, and now he's with Paul and Silas and Timothy on this journey. And so like literally what we're reading from here on is an eyewitness account of the guy, Luke, that wrote this thing, of everything that he saw. Just kind of a cool thing, kind of pretty, just pretty powerful in my mind. Well, what did God do through them? Um, verses 11 through 15, we can see from, from Troas. Um, well, I guess I better read it. I haven't read that far yet. 11 through um, the 15 here. It says, we, we boarded a boat to Troas and, and sailed straight across the island of Somathrace. And the next day we landed at Naples. From there we reached Philippi, a major city of that district of Macedonia in a Roman colony, and we stayed there several days. On the Sabbath, we went a little way outside the city to a riverbank where we thought people would be meeting for prayer, and we sat down to speak with some women who had gathered there. One of them was Lydia from Thyatira, a merchant of expensive purple cloth who worshipped God, and as she listened to us, the Lord opened her heart, and she accepted what Paul was saying. She and her household were baptized, and she asked us to be her guests. If you agree that I am a true believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my home, and she urged us until we agreed. So what we see here that, that this journey, ended, they, they went over to Greece, and they traveled about 10 miles inland up to the city of Philippi. Now, the city of Philippi was a very, very important city um, in the Roman Empire. I talked about a number of the Roman provinces or districts, and, and generally speaking, from my understanding, they would have at least one major city in each one of those provinces where what the Roman government would do is they would actually order Roman citizens to, to go and stay in these cities. Many times they were like ex-soldiers, and they would like say, look, you need to go here. This is where you're stationed. This is where I want you to live. And as a perk, they would be tax-free for the rest of their lives. Zero taxes. I mean, it sounds like a pretty darn good deal, doesn't it? I mean, I, I think I'd move to like Puerto Rico for something like that if I could have the whole tax-free life. But, uh, but anyways, that's kind of what would happen here. Um, and so anyways, this is where Paul and the others stopped, and, and they were there for a few days. And when the Sabbath came, which we know was Saturday, um, the, the Jews worshiped there uh, on Saturday, and, and, and it says that they went down by a riverbank because they had apparently heard that there were people that had gathered down there, people um, that they worshiped God, and, and so that's where they went. And as they went down there, and they, they met these people, and they began to speak to them. One of them was this woman named Lydia, a gal from Tyatira, which was a city back in kind of Asia Minor, where Paul and them had came from. And it says that she was a seller of purple cloth. Now, if he, who's ever seen like an old Roman movie? Like a movie like depicted like Rome or ancient Greece? 
like you always see the dignitaries with like these purple robes or purple sashes or whatever. Well, it, it was a sign of like prominence in society. Like, like the high to do um, people in society would wear purple. Certainly the emperor and any people in authority would wear purple. So, I mean, more than likely she was a very, very wealthy person. Well, verse 14 tells us um, that as he began to tell them about Jesus, this woman Lydia opened her heart and accepted his message. And, and I just, I found that phrase really interesting, that, that she opened her heart. What does that mean, that she opened her heart? Now, basically he's talking about her, her innermost being. Like, if you've been in church at all for very long, certainly in any type of evangelistic church, you've probably heard this question. Have you asked Jesus into your heart? Have you, have you ever heard that question ever? Okay, one person. I'm so glad we're, we're, we're all in this today. Okay, there we go. So, okay, so this is a very, very common phrase, especially today. Now, when you're asked that question or hear that question, it's not like literal. We're, we're not like asking Jesus to come into our left and right ventricles, right? That, that, that's not exactly what we're saying. But if you think about the, the organ of the heart, doesn't it make sense that, that we ask this question. Now, you think about what the heart does. It, it pumps blood, right, through, through every part of our body. I mean, literally, it pumps life through our veins. Oxygen and, and blood cells and, and all these different things go to all over the body, right? Now, think about what the Bible says about a person before Christ. It says that we're sinners, but not just sinners. Like, our, our entire being is infected, right? We have this infection called sin, and we need to be completely cleansed. And so when we say, Jesus, come into my heart, what we're saying is, Jesus, come in and just penetrate my entire being. Like, come into my heart and flow through every vein, every blood vessel, every capillary, and cleanse me from head to toe. I mean, that's kind of the idea of asking Jesus to come into our heart and be our Lord and Savior. So when it says that Lydia heard the message of Jesus and, 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 like, and opened her heart, the idea was, was this was something she knew that she both needed and wanted, and she responded by receiving Jesus into her heart, into her life as her Lord and Savior. Then in verse 15, she followed the Lord Jesus' command and was baptized, um, physically identifying herself as a new follower in Christ. And I've said this many a times, but in the first century, that, that act of baptism, that act of putting somebody in the water and bringing them up, it, it was the first century sign of somebody who identified as a Jesus follower. If you remember back in the Gospels, Jesus was, was baptized, right? Certainly it wasn't for the forgiveness of sins. He didn't have any, but he, he set the standard. And, and, he, and he did this because everybody after that, it was an, an identifier, if you will, of somebody that is, that is following his example, that is, that is choosing to make him Lord and Savior. And, and this woman, Lydia, did that. But she wasn't the only one. It says here that everybody in her household was baptized that day as well, which, which simply has to mean that they made the same choice she did. That they, all these people that were there at, the, at, that, at that, that, that riverbank heard this message of Christ and surrendered their life to Jesus and was saved. You know, it sounds to me like that trip to the river is exactly where God had planned for them to be that day. In fact, if we think about every single one of these verses we kind of talked about in our passage today, 
it really is amazing that it seems like God orchestrated everything that happened to bring Paul and Silas and all these people exactly where he wanted them to be. So I want to give you a little insight about my sermon prep time, because it kind of feeds into what we're going to talk about in the rest of, of our time here. So when I, when I sit down on a Monday morning or Tuesday morning, when depending on what day I start my sermon for the week, I, I read through a passage of Scripture, and whatever passage of Scripture that is, I kind of go through this process, and, and I ask myself like three basic questions. The first one I always ask myself when I prepare for a sermon is, what is the original context of the verses that I am studying. Like, I ask myself questions like, what's going on during this time in history? What was the culture like? Who was in charge at the time? Who is the writer addressing? How would the original readers of whatever passage that was understand what was saying? And like, this is so important even in your own personal studies. Can I tell you that? It is so important to read Scripture and understand it from its original intent. Context, right? Because... If, if we don't do that, we very, very easily can fall into false doctrine. We can misinterpret and misinterpret Scripture. And it happens so often that somebody will just take, like, this one verse out of a whole passage, ignore everything around it, and, like, build an entire doctrine on something that just goes against the rest of Scripture, right? And so it's, that's one thing I do. Like, that's step number one. But the other two questions are this. I ask myself, what is God teaching us about himself in that passage? What, what attribute of God, what character trait of God is he teaching us about himself? Because there's always an attribute of God to be seen in every passage. And the final question I ask myself is what application for our lives is there in the passage? And as I read this and just thought about it and just asked the Lord, what is it that you have for, for your people this week? What stuck out to me in this whole passage was this thing called God's providence. The, the providence of God. It's a big word. I'm, I'm going I'm to explain to you what it means here. I, I like the way John Piper, uh, uh, just a famous preacher, and this is what he says. The providence of God is his purposeful, so, is, is, okay, the providence of God is his person, purposeful, tongue-tied, sovereignty by which he will completely, will be completely successful in the achievement of his ultimate goal for the universe. God's providence carries his plans into action, guides all things towards its ultimate goal, and leads to the final consummation of all things. The basic idea is this, is that God has a perfect plan for everything that cannot be thwarted. He's in control at all times. He guides all things to achieve his plan, and no one and nothing can stop him. There is nothing that God doesn't anticipate. With God, there is nothing that surprises him, and nothing is, uh, there is nothing left to chance. With God, he has seen and planned for every twist and turn of history before it ever happened, and nothing will stop what he has declared. That's the idea of the providence of God. The idea that he has seen all things that ha will ever occur from the beginning of time to the end of time, and he has a plan for every single one of them. Now, it doesn't mean that God causes every little thing to happen, but he saw everything that would happen. It's like lines and pieces of a puzzle that all at the end fit together in this perfect picture. Isaiah 46 verses 9 and 10 tells this, Remember the things I have done in the past. This is God speaking. For I alone am God. 
I am God, and there is none like me. Only I can tell you the future before it even happens. Everything I plan will come to pass, for I do whatever I wish. Now, the providence of God is seen like throughout the entire Bible, where we see this plan that is declared way back here that comes to fruition way over here. Like, consider the fall of man in Genesis chapter 3. There's like this, this past, this, this verse in verse 15 of there that, that talks about um, this, this Savior that's going to come and crush the head of the enemy. That didn't happen until like 4,000 some years after that when the Messiah came. I mean, there, there's stuff like the prophets that, that spoke about things to come and for Israel, and many of them happened, and some are still yet to happen. And God spoke and declared through Daniel like the secession of world empires like before they ever came to exist. And then they happened in perfect order, just like he said. I mean, the prophets of the Old Testament spoke of the Messiah centuries before he came, and it happened exactly like they said. I mean, it, God's providence is an amazing thing. How he takes all these pieces of history and all these different people in wars and events and good things and bad things and, 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 and brings them all to work together to accomplish his perfect plan. It's amazing. Now, what's cool about our passage for scripture today, of Scripture today is we see this like in, in action. Now, of course, we have a couple of privileges that Paul and the others didn't have at the time, like hindsight and having like the entire Bible to look back on and see kind of what came of this. But what I'm going to do for just a few moments um, as we kind of bring this to a close is I want to go through these verses just quickly again from this perspective of God's providence and just watch how this all pieces together. It's pretty cool. For instance, in, in, in verses 36 through 41, we have like this split between Paul and Barnabas. Again, this seems like a bad thing, and yet instead of one missionary team, now you have two missionary teams that, that are going out doing God's work. Silas ended up joining Paul, and we'll see in the chapters ahead, he had a massive impact on the Christian world over the following decades. Because Barnabas took a chance on Mark, Mark became the man we know today that wrote the fourth book, or the second book of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, the gospel of Mark, that same Mark. That's the guy that wrote the gospel of Mark. Then you get to like verses 1 through 5 of chapter 16. So because Barnabas was gone, because um, John Mark wasn't with him, um, Paul needed a new pupil, right? He needed somebody else that he could disciple, so he, he chose this young man named Timothy to go with him. He, he, because um, Timothy agreed to Paul's request of being circumcised, Timothy was able to learn under Paul, minister to many people, Jew and Gentile alike, and eventually Timothy became a massively huge voice in the first century church, so much so that he became the pastor of the church at Ephesus. And guess what? We have two books of our New Testament that bear his name, first and second, Timothy. Then the, the rest of our passage, like we see that, that God prevented Paul and, and Silas and them from going up to Galatia and Phrygia. And like, why? What's wrong with going to share the gospel up there? I mean, we can only speculate to an extent, right? Um, maybe the hearts of those people weren't ready for the gospel. No, God knows I don't. Uh, maybe God was preventing them something from, from some bad event, like something may have happened to them there. Could be, I don't really know, but, but here's what we do know. Because God led them away from those areas and because God led them to Troas, guess who they picked up in Troas? They picked up a young man named Luke. Um, the, the same Luke that, that wrote the book of Acts. 
the same Luke that wrote the third book of the New Testament, the Gospel of Luke. You know, we do know that there was a group of women in Philippi that were meeting on a riverbank whose hearts were ready to meet Jesus, and because Paul and the others heeded the voice of God, a whole group of people were saved, and guess what? There was a church started in the city of Philippi, and, and who knows if there's also, wouldn't you know it, another book of our New Testament named Philippians, which was a letter from the Apostle Paul to the church at Philippi that he helped start through this woman, Lydia. And as the rest of their journey goes on, as we'll see over the next couple weeks, because they went this way and heeded the voice of God, they went from Philippi, ended up in Thessalonica, which there's two more letters in our New Testament books, which is First and Second Thessalonians, letters written to those churches, to that church, right? And then they ended up in Corinth, and wouldn't you know, two more books of our New Testament, First and Second Corinthians. So like all these little things combined, when we look at it from God's perspective, from God's providence, like resulted in multitudes of people being saved, many churches being started, and like at least eight books of our Bible that were written as a result. The point is, God knew what he was doing. You know, at times it probably seemed like a frustrating journey for those who were involved, yet in the end, God used all of these things to accomplish the exact plan that he wanted these men to do. And they accomplished it by the providence of God, because God's sovereign. And 2,000 years in the future, where we're at today, guess what? We're still benefiting from these few verses that we just read about here today. Because we have all these books in our Bible that we're still learning from. I like what the, the commentator gave it, David Guzik said about this. He says, at the time, Paul probably had no idea of the greatness of God's purpose. God wanted to give him a continent for Jesus, to give him a personal doctor, which was Luke, and to give all of us the man whom God would use to write more of the New Testament than anyone else did. God knows what he was doing. You know something? What was true about God then is still true today. God is still on his throne, and the truth is, is that should bring us incredible peace. It should bring us incredible confidence and hope to our lives. Because God's providence is still in action to this day. And guess what? In each of our lives, God's providence is in the works. You may be thinking, are you sure? Can you prove it? Absolutely. Absolutely. Psalm 139 and verse 16, listen to what this says. You saw me before I was born. Each day of my life was recorded in your book. Every moment laid out before a single day had passed. Wrap your mind around that. Before I was ever a nightmare, God had my whole life planned out for me. I mean, <laughs> I was a nightmare to my parents. You get that, I hope, right? Like God knew every detail of our lives before the world was ever made. Do you realize that? There's other scriptures that says before the foundations of the world. Everything planned out. Like every single thing that would ever happen to us throughout our lives, every decision we would ever make, every sickness we would ever have, every trial we would ever face, every mistake we would ever make, God knows it all. He's seen it all. He has a plan for all of it. So if that's true, why do we worry? Why do we fear? Why do we allow anxiety to control us? Why do we allow doubt to creep in? Why do we get stressed out about the future? Like if we serve a sovereign providential God, why do we allow these things 
to take over our minds. Like we get worried and fearful about the turmoil in our country. Yet why do we worry? When we have passages like Job 12, 23, that says God builds up nations, he destroys them. He expands nations, he abandons them. Or, or Daniel 2, verses 20 and 21, Praise the name of God forever and ever, for he has all wisdom and power. He controls the course of world events. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the scholars. I mean, that's our God. Nations are in place there today because... God allowed it because God ordained it. People are in charge today because God ordained it. Now, there's somewhere I understand and somewhere I go, are you sure? But uh, guess what? He has a plan for every single piece of it, the good ones and the bad ones. You can really see that as you read through the Old Testament, all the kings and the different things that Israel went through. You know, we stress out about decisions we have to make. Yet why? Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, it simply tells us, Trust, uh, it tells us to trust in the Lord with all your hearts, to, to lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and it says, he'll ignore you, right? Nope, nope. Well, he, he, he might direct your path. Nope, nope. He will direct your path. If we seek God, he will direct us. Job 12 and verse 13, true wisdom and power are found in God. Counsel and understanding are his. If that's the God we serve, why do we worry? But what if the decision I make doesn't work? What if, what if it doesn't work out the way I want it to? What if, the, what if the decision's the wrong one? Ah! Guess what? God's got a plan for that stuff too. Romans 8, 28, he works all things together for good. For those who love him, for those who are called according to his purpose. I love Proverbs 16 and verse 9. We can make our plans, but it's God that directs our steps. So why do we worry? What I'm convinced of is this, as Christians, right? We, we do all this worrying about decisions and all these different things. If we as Christians seek the wisdom of God through prayer, seek the counsel of God through his word, and make decisions based upon that, regardless of the outcome, don't you think that that's exactly the way God wants us to do it? We're a bunch of narcissistic suckers, aren't we? Because we want to control the future. We want to control everything. We, we want to make sure every decision we make, we want to have the perfect outcome because we want to have absolute control. Can I tell you something? That's not faith. And that's not the way God wants us to live. Yes, he wants us to make decisions based on his word, based on his counsel. But at the end of the day, we have to trust our future to him because guess what? He's the only one that knows it. And no matter how much we try to control the future, we can't do it. But like, what if things go wrong? Then they go wrong. Now, some people think of the providence of God, and they think to themselves, well, if, if God knew everything that was going to happen to me in my life, if he knew every decision that was going to be made, if he knew all the things that were going to happen, then why has he allowed so much pain in my life? Why, why has he allowed the hurtful things in my life? If he saw it all, why didn't he stop it? Because guess what? He's got a plan for that stuff too. 
And it's not, it's, even though it sounds crazy, it's, it's for someone's good and most of the time ours. He works all things for good. Again, so often we fear about what the future may hold. We, we fear sickness, disease, death. Yet yeah, why? Did not God foresee all of it? Has not God said in his word that he's going to be with us through those times? Doesn't God's word say that he'll never leave us nor abandon us? Doesn't he promise us his comfort? Doesn't he promise us in his word that if we seek him, he will bring us peace that surpasses all understanding? He does. And the thing is, is God has a purpose for every pain, every struggle. Why? One of the reasons why is because it's through those things that we learn the different attributes of God, like his peace and his comfort and his love at those times, the things that we would never learn otherwise. And I've often wondered this one, like, why do Christians fear death when the Bible says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord? What about our blunders? What about our sins? Believe it or not, in God's providence, he has a plan for that stuff, too. Is it an amazing? You see that all throughout Scripture. Look at Matthew chapter 1. And that really, um, those, those boring, like, lineage chapters, like the son of, 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 like, all the lineage of Jesus. There's a bunch of stinking scoundrels in, in, in the genealogy of Jesus. Adulterers, murderers, harlots. You think God could use even that in his providence? Absolutely. With everything going on in our world right now, so many people are fearful of what may come. Yet why do we fear what the future holds when at the end of our book we have this, this little book called the book of Revelation? And there's something amazing about the book of Revelation some people look at it and are real scared by it, but if, if you just like flip to the end, that's the good part. And guess what happens at the end? We win. We win. In the end, regardless of what happens in this world, guess what? Jesus is going to sit on his throne as King of kings and Lord of lords, and we're going to reign with him for eternity. So why do we fear about what the world holds? We have a God that has seen everything, has declared things from beginning to end. Like, have you ever considered that... <laughs> just, just think about this. But before the end of time, God had declared... Before time began, God had declared the end. Think about that. Before time began... God had already seen everything that would happen throughout the entire history of mankind. That the, rent, the end has already been written. I mean, you get to the very last chapter of Revelation. It says that Jesus was crucified before the foundations of the world. It's amazing. Like, have you considered that as, that as we look at things as distant future... Since the beginning of time, God has looked at it all as history. Think about that. From day one, it was God's, he saw the very last day of mankind in our future as history. 
It's crazy. That, that God looked down through every layer of history, through every generation from beginning to end, and saw everything that would ever happen to any of us and had a plan for all of it. That's God's providence. And friends, that should bring us incredible, incredible comfort. Because of God's providence, we should have confidence in everything that we do and every decision that we make. Because of God's providence, friends, we can trust Him in the good times and in the bad. I want to close with this verse, Psalm 119, 90-91. Your faithfulness extends to every generation. As enduring as the earth you created, your regulations remain true to this day, for everything serves your plans. Friends, we serve a sovereign God. And here's the thing. If you're a Christian here, you can do one of two things. You can live your life with worry and anxiety and fear, leaving everything up to chance, wondering how the future is going to hold. Or, you know what? You can choose to rest in the sovereignty of God. You, you can choose to rest in the fact that God knows your future every single day. You're not going to die one second before he is ordained. Just trust him. If you're here and you don't know Jesus as your Savior, you got one or two choices. You can leave it up to chance, or you can place your faith in the one who has declared the end from the beginning. You can, you can give your life to Jesus today and entrust yourself to his care, or you can chance it and see what happens in the end. I would advise you to not chance it because the Bible says very, very clearly that there's going to be a day that Christ Jesus is coming back, that he's going to judge every single person for everything that they have done, everything they have thought, everything they have said. And friends, the only way that we're going to get past that judgment into everlasting glory with the Lord is if we know Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. Because there ain't none of us good enough to get there on our own. So I would invite you not to trust your life to chance, but to trust your life to Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the encouragement that comes through it. Dear God, I pray, Lord, that you would help us to trust you more. Help us to lean upon this attribute of yours that you're a providential God that wastes nothing. Nothing happens by chance. Nothing happens by accident. You have a plan for all of it before it ever happened. God, let us trust you, rely upon you, have faith and confidence in you even when rough times come and bad things happen. Lord, let us trust that you have a plan for it, Lord. God, we need you. We tr I, just, I just thank you for who you are. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We close. We're going to stand together and just sing just one more song.